Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Welcome to the SG Engage podcast. I'm Rachel Hutchison, and I have the honor and pleasure of leading global social responsibility at Blackboard. I'm joined today on the podcast by Miko Marquette Whitlock, who is the mindful techie. So welcome to the podcast, Miko. Thank you so much, Rachel. Happy to be here. It is so great to be with you again. It's been a while since we last connected. And I'm really pleased to to be here to talk about something that I know you are super passionate about and that is hugely important, and that is um, well-being in general. But today, really specifically, workplace well-being and what I guess we are now calling a post-pandemic world, although I'm not sure when one decides when pandemic (laughs) ends. Yeah, so really great to have you here. So let's just jump right in and start with with you know how has the pandemic impacted well being of nonprofit professionals or other social good professionals, and how does that continue to show up in what this this you know I was saying like how do we know when it ends? It's like this extended experience that we're in. So so talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So just picking up on what you just said about the extended experience, one of the major impacts has been this emotional roller coaster that many of us has been on, right? So we when the pandemic first started in 2020, I think many of us heard about it and we thought that, oh, this is something that's gonna be done. They're gonna they're gonna figure it out and deal with it in about two weeks, we'll be back to normal. And here we are in year three, I think at this point of the pandemic and things are still sort of up in the air, right? And during this period of time, Many of us have gone from feeling like, okay, things are okay, to, oh my God, we have to cancel this, we have to rework this, to, okay, it's going to be good, but then we're not sure how, but we're going to get through this together, right? And there are four major factors that contribute to this emotional roller coaster that we've been on. One of it is the uncertainty, which, which, which is what you alluded to, right? We've been in this place for a long time. When is it going to end? What does post-pandemic mean? How will we know when we've actually arrived? Have we actually already arrived at that point, right? So that's the uncertainty piece. In the short term, from a human perspective, we do very well with uncertainty. But when we stretch it out over the long term, we know that the research shows us that it actually impacts us on so many levels, you know, from emotionally, um, psychologically, and even, you know, uh, manifests um, itself negatively in terms of physical symptoms. There's, of course, the social isolation piece. And so you and I are actually doing this interview where we're in separate locations. And for those of us that are extroverts, we actually might thrive on the energy of connecting with people in person, right? And so some of us that are introverts, maybe we are having the time of our lives because we're like, great, we can just, we can be at home and not necessarily have to be in, in an office where we have to walk in and say good morning to 50 million people every morning, right? And so we're, we're good, right? So that's affecting people differently work-life balance or the lack thereof, everything sort of blurring together. And then of course the technology overload piece, right? One of the more recent stats that I've seen over the last couple of weeks actually shares that for many of us, our screen time is actually during the pandemic increased by a factor of 60%, right? And so what does that mean in terms of our overall health and well-being? What does it mean in terms of how we're showing up at home? And then how's, what does it mean in terms of how we're showing up at work and actually making an impact or not? And so this in terms of how it manifests, one of the big things that we've been hearing about is this 
the, the great resignation, right? Many of us have heard about the great resignation. And I really like to reframe that as not so much the great resignation, but really thinking about it as the evolution of work, right? So we're, we're not going back to normal. And really what has is, what is shifted is the power that we saw in institutions is actually moving to the individual, right? And so we're, we're actually, as a result of the pandemic, what's become clearer for many of us, particularly in the, in the nonprofit sector and the, and the social sector is what we actually value, right? In, in balance with our work, right? We, we, we've experienced tremendous losses. And so when I talk with groups and organizations during this pandemic, um, and I ask people what they're grateful for, inevitably one of the, one of the first things that comes up to people is I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my, my support systems. Right. And so what's happening is people are rethinking their work responsibilities. They're rethinking how they make an impact in the world and figuring out how they can prioritize life outside of work at, at the same time. And this is what we're thinking of or seeing as sort of the evolution of work where people are, are demanding and asking for more flexibility in terms of how they do the work to address longstanding issues around being overworked and, over, uh, and underfunded. Maybe there's been an issue with benefits, for example, in certain organizations. And so now the equilibrium, the power is sort of shifting and we're saying, let's think differently about how we approach this moving forward so that we can create a way of working and doing good work in the world that actually works better for many more people and not just a subset of people at the top. So it's like, this is like therapy for me here. So here you are, you're a certified mindfulness teacher and, and I certainly need one of those. I'm one of those people who I take energy from being with other people. And so yes. being sitting here, I'm sitting here in a room recording this with you that used to be my son's bedroom. I didn't have a place to work at home. I had to find a place to work at home. And I had to yes. rethink that kind of contract I had with myself about work and life and how they were intertwined and, and how I identified with myself through that yes. and what that, that new relationship is. And it, it is a new relationship. It feels different. So, so this is fascinating to me. So give us some advice here. Um, what are ways nonprofit professionals can create and sustain a culture of well-being in this new workplace? I think the first place to start is really just by acknowledging where we are, right? Acknowledging that things are new, things are different, things are continuing to evolve, acknowledging that we don't have all the answers. Um, there's research that shows that the simple power of acknowledgement creates psychological safety. It creates a shared understanding of experience. It gives us a shared language. And even if we don't have all the answers, even if we're all collectively going through what might be uh, a very difficult or challenging time, one of the things that we know by simply that power of acknowledgement, that it creates a bond that almost fosters a collective will and resilience to overcome whatever the obstacle is together. And so I think one of the first places to start is let's take our heads out of this, out of the sand. Let's not pretend that everything is, is, is the way it was. And we can simply acknowledge that. And that can be a first place in terms of, to your point about the, the trauma, about actually healing right? We can actually use that word we, we, to, to actually start a healthy healing process from this collective trauma that we've experienced. So that's really a, a first place that I would start. Something else that I would say uh, in terms of just really being practical, once we've actually acknowledged where we are, um, you know, at the leadership level in organizations, we have to have a real conversation about 
workload and job design. Many of us have actually taken on more or different responsibilities as a result of the pandemic. And for many of our organizations, there hasn't actually been a formal acknowledgement or an assessment to say, hey, Rachel, we acknowledge that you know, we added these three things to your portfolio during the, during the pandemic. It wasn't intended to be permanent, but yet here we are three years later. Let's have a conversation about how you're doing, how we can make adjustments. And at the organizational level, do we say no to taking on more responsibility? Do we have the hard conversation about actually turning down funding in some instances? Because it might actually mean taking on more than the organization can actually handle. And so it requires us to have those hard conversations and in a, at a broader level, figuring out how do we um, acknowledge where people are and make adjustments based on that in terms of workload, um, responsibility, thinking about even uh, arrangements and structures in terms of how people are working, right? What, what type of hours um, are we expecting? What type of flexibility can we allow folks? Uh, and where people actually work from? What does that actually look like? You mentioned turning your son's bedroom into an office. Um, well, what if that were to be a permanent fixture, if that's working for you? Well, what if that were to be a permanent benefit, for example, that you had in terms of how you did your work? If you wanted that option to permanently or for a couple of days a week to be able to work from your new home office, what would it mean to be able to offer that type of flexibility where it makes sense in our organizations so that we can support people as they are moving through this challenging time, but also um, make sure that in terms of the organization that we're doing what we need to do in order to make sure that we're still being productive and impactful. I had a conversation uh, with someone actually just yesterday. I'm on a nonprofit board and we were talking about how important it was to provide context to employees that if uh, a customer comes and says, we're going to provide, or a donor, we're going to provide X amount of funding for you to do this thing. Yes. The assumption was, well, of course, we're going to take that on and we need to hurry up and get ready so we can deliver on that, that funding yes. expectation. When actually the answer might be, let's have a conversation and delay that funding until later, because if we take it on, we're actually affecting your health and well-being because we're putting you under pressure from the very beginning. And we yes. probably are going to disappoint that funder over time because we're not going to deliver well. So, so how saying no or later actually is defending the employee and how it, really interesting context. Yes. So in addition to that, another option is negotiating the renegotiating the terms of that funding to say, yes, we would be willing to take this on, but we recognize because of workload or we recognize because the way we work has changed that actually we would propose that we do it this way, that we extend the, the window in terms of time needed to deliver. Um, and that actually we don't want to use your cumbersome reporting system. We want to, we want to do it this way because it's actually, it's going to be more efficient and effective for our staff. And it's actually going to help you get the data that you need more quickly. Right? So I think, Part of that is also being willing to have those conversations and to, you know, a good funder is going to be willing to at least hear, I think, those those concerns. And because this is a partnership, right? It's not a my way or the highway. Like I have the money and you do what I say. This is a partnership. We're working together. We're all in this together. We share a, a common goal in terms of making impact in the communities that we serve. And so the question is, how can we best do that given how things have shifted over the past several years? So lots of things have changed. How should leaders be finding out what employees want? What should they ask? Yes, yeah, so I, I think 
the the assumption is that people are actually asking the question, right? And so I would actually back up a little bit and say a lot of organizations are making assumptions, right, about what people want. And I think the first place to start is to actually ask the question uh, or ask a series of questions. And I think that there are uh, a few different ways that this can happen. Um, there can be um, surveys that, that organizations can do. And if folks aren't already in the process where they are annually or um, twice a year doing something to check in with where folks are and what they need and how things are going, I, I would say start that ASAP. Yeah. Uh, if you already have a process, looking at the data that you already have uh, and figuring out where you can actually take action and not just collect data, but you can actually take action uh, and reflect back to people that you understand and you hear them and that you can take action. And then in, in terms of the, the actual questions that, you, that you're asking, I'm a big fan of asking open-ended questions and giving people space to articulate um, needs that you might not have thought of, right? So one of the challenges with some of the approaches sometimes in organizations is that we presuppose that, oh, well, people like these three options just to see which of these three options people actually like when actually none of those options are what people probably need or want. And no one's really courageous enough to speak up and say that for fear of repercussions. And so asking open-ended questions. And so in this context with the work that I do, three questions I'll, I'll give you. One is, you know, what's your single biggest challenge right now with work-life balance? Number two, what's your single biggest challenge that you're facing right now with tech life balance or with technology, right? That's one of the things that we're seeing in terms of the increased screen time that that's a challenge for folks. And here's the, the final question, which is, I think is the money question here. What's the single biggest thing you need right now to improve things for you, right? Um, you can make that more specific to well-being, to your 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 life at work, your life at home, and you would be surprised how honest people will be when you ask an open-ended question like that, and also how simple, right? We did a survey earlier this year with some of your um, your your clients here, Blackbot, earlier this year, and we asked. Actually, these three questions were included as part of a broader survey, but the responses um, indicated that people really just wanted acknowledgement that things were different. They wanted more flexibility in terms of scheduling. Um, they wanted, you know, more time off. And I think for, for many organizations, those are, I think I would argue probably pretty simple things that we could probably figure out how to make those things happen, regardless of the size of your organization um, or the type of organization. And so it, it doesn't have to necessarily be, I think, a big grand sort of restructuring and we're going to go through this process where we're trying to figure out a new mission and vision. It's like that. That's not what people are asking for. And I think sometimes organizations shy away from asking because they, they feel like it's going to be a bigger lift than it actually turns out to be. Yeah. And a lot of those answers over the last few years of what I've been hearing from my colleagues is I need to not have a meeting between 2.30 and 3.30 because my kids get home from school yes. or my elderly parent moved in with us. And I need grace to take, you know, my mother to the doctor. I need things that are yes. very human. I feel like it's made it a very human conversation. And yes. I know that's what we focused a lot on at, at work about, you know, how do you manage and lead effectively in a time where everybody is under a lot of stress and you really have to just be human and admit and be very vulnerable about what you're dealing with. And, and it makes yes. it so much easier to see them as a person versus as a employee or a worker. 
Absolutely. And I think just to add on to that, you asked about the different ways people can ask these questions. I talked about the surveys, obviously, you can do this organization wide. But if you are in a context where you're supervising or you're the supervisee, obviously, I hope that folks are leveraging those one on one conversations to have honest and frank conversations. And then the other aspect of this is at the team level, right? So if you're managing a team, making space in your check ins and in your team meetings to not just talk about the work, but also check in with how people are doing and being able to foster a culture where people feel vulnerable enough to say exactly what you just said. Hey, my, my mother moved in with me. I'm supporting her as a caregiver. You know, here's what I need on Thursday afternoons, for example, um, et cetera. Yeah. So let's get practical. What tools and strategies would you recommend um, nonprofit professionals can use to actually enhance their well-being, no matter where they sit in the organization? Yeah, so this is a really great question. I love this question. And so I'm just going to tick through a couple of things really quickly. So the first here is around meetings. So meetings have increased exponentially by some data during the pandemic. And part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we have technologies like Zoom, for example, and other video platforms that make it really easy to connect with people really quickly. And so uh, we've had more check-ins where people sort of reach out. Maybe you had this happen, Rachel. People say, hey, I have a quick question. Can you can we hop on Zoom and talk about X, Y, and Z? And then you have a number of those that are happening throughout the day. Uh, it happened to me today. To, Twice. Yes, yes. In addition to long-standing meetings, right? And then it, it, it eats up the time that you actually have available to actually get work done. And so I'm a big fan of two things. One, having shorter meetings, right? And what does this mean? One of the clients I work with has a take five policy where they automatically give people five minutes after the start of the meeting and before the end of the, the meeting as their time. So if you have a 60 minute meeting that becomes 50 minutes and people have that five minutes before and after to go to the bathroom, transition from the last thing that they were doing or you know have an opportunity to put the dog up if you were walking the dog or whatever it was, right? So that's one aspect of it. And you can change your default calendar settings, whether you're using Outlook or Gmail to shorten the default length of those meetings. I'm a big fan of doing this for shortening the hour long meetings to 50 minutes, shortening half hour meetings to 20 minutes. And it can make a tremendous difference in terms of time and the aggregate that you get back on the back end. The other thing I'm a big fan of is it sounds very basic, but we often in many cases don't do this because we're so in a hurry and rushing is to actually think about ahead of time, you know, having an agenda for the meeting where you clearly outline what's the intention, what's the question that we're trying to answer, what's the problem that we're trying to solve as we're, as we're doing that. Are the right people invited to the meeting? What are the action steps once you actually have the meeting? Who's going to follow up, et cetera? And then many times, if we were to go through this checklist before we actually schedule a meeting, how many meetings would actually not be necessary, right? Or would be dramatically shorter because we realize, actually, I don't need to have a meeting for this because I could just send Rachel a quick Slack message and get an answer to my question and not have to invite six people to an hour long meeting that is unnecessary. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I get so, so much work done in teams chat, just yes. quick question here. Tell me this, tell me that. And it just keeps everything moving and it's very absolutely. fluid. Absolutely. So that's, that's the first one, having shorter and more intentional meetings. The second one that I, I would share with you here is, is about having a start and a stop routine. So whether you're working remotely, you're doing hybrid or you're doing in-person, one of the things that we've seen with how the pandemic has shifted is we've given up our commute time that we had and the transition time that we had before and after work before the pandemic. And I think we can be intentional about actually reclaiming that. And 
Um, I encourage people to start with, if you don't already have a start and a stop routine or ritual for your day, to start with scheduling five minutes for yourself before the start of your workday and after your workday, put it on your calendar and do something for yourself that allows you to pour into yourself before you pour into the world, right? So is that yoga? Is that meditation? Is that sipping a cup of coffee? Is that sitting, sitting with the dog on the couch? Whatever that is for you, figuring out what that is and making that non-negotiable and putting that on your calendar so you have that necessary separation between getting into your workday and transitioning to the rest of what's happening. And if, if your work schedule is such that um, it's not a traditional nine to five, you can schedule these throughout your day based on what your schedule is. So for lots of folks, they work a chunk in the morning or maybe mid-afternoon, and then they have, they're doing caregiver duty with kids or with an elderly relative, and they're back online after dinner. Perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You can still book in those chunks of time with your start and stop routine so you have time for yourself to, to refuel. I yeah. love that. I have to say I love that, and I didn't realize that that had a name. You know, when I was working in the office, I, on my way home, I, I listened to books on audible. I read and I listened to books and mm -hmm. I would, I, you know, it was like anywhere from a half an hour to an hour, depending on traffic. And I actually decided to make that me time instead of being annoyed yes. that I was in traffic. And so I would listen <laughs> to whether, you know, whatever it was, I'll listen to a lot of novels, but also nonfiction. And it would basically help me transition my brain and my pace away from work to being at home. So I didn't just walk into home kind of with my head filled up with work. And, and I really enjoyed that. It was a long enough drive that, that I could, could make that transition and working at home. I have found that I often stop my day and go take a walk and do that yes. so that I'm not just literally walking from here out the door into my, you know, living room and, you know, th that's not healthy for everybody else for me to be still be worrying and thinking about work. Yes. I have and that the research, absolutely. And I think that's a great example that you just shared in terms of starting that routine. And it's backed up by research. The research actually shows that we're more productive when we actually take that time away from work, right? Rest, restoration, recharging, whatever we're doing to, to make that possible is a necessary part of our productivity. It's not a nice to have, right? It's actually a necessary part of it. And if we go too long without that, we end up burning out, right? Uh, we end up draining our creativity and we're not able to be as creative as we otherwise could be if we were to build in this as part of our creativity method. One last thing I'll share with you, with you in terms of practical tips is something that I call your rules of engagement. One of the things that has happened with the pandemic as well is because with the increase demands on our time in terms of connecting and, and meetings and so on, we are, particularly in the change-making space, we are, sometimes some of us have personalities where we're people-pleasing, we want to do our best work, we're perfectionists, and we are making assumptions about what's expected of us in terms of time um, when we get an email or a Teams message or a Slack message, and we feel like everything is urgent, everything has to um, be done right away, and everything has to be A++++ right? When we do that, right? And so one of the things that I encourage people to do is to have an explicit conversation about your rules of engagement. This means that you're having an explicit conversation at the individual and at the team level about what are your hours of availability? What is the best way to reach you if something is urgent versus non-urgent? 
what are expectations in terms of response times if something is urgent versus non-urgent and based on the method in which you are reaching someone or the tool that's using to reach someone? And what are the ways in which we are making space for us to actually have a discussion about what actually constitutes urgent, what actually constitutes important versus something that could actually wait or something that is not as urgent, right? Uh, and so having explicit conversations about that reduces some of that uncertainty, reduces some of that anxiety and some of that stress, and we're able to be clearer about, okay, well, I can wait until my check-in with, with Rachel to discuss this. I don't need to bother Rachel right now about this. Or actually, this is a fire. This is like a three-alarm fire. I need to actually call Rachel right now and get this resolved because if we don't, then this catastrophic thing is going to happen, right? Being clear about those things, I think, creates a shared language for all of us, and it lowers our individual and collective anxiety and stress about this always-on nature that we sort of found ourselves falling into, especially being exacerbated by the pandemic. So I had a boss once who taught me this concept, and it's going to sound kind of odd, but sometimes it's okay to get a B. So if you classically look what a a C is average, a B is good, and an A is excellent. And at work, we always feel like, and you've said it, like I'm supposed to be excellent and everything's supposed to be, you know, top of my game. And this, this person looked at me once and said, just get a B on it. Do good work. It doesn't have to be the best thing you've ever done. Just do good work, get it done, and get it done within this time frame or you're, you know, eating into other things. And I was like, what a liberating idea. So I've said that to many people, like, this is something we just need to get a B on. Good is good. Let it be good. Don't, don't strive to make everything excellent when that isn't actually necessary. Yes. So that's really stuck with me. Yes. I I think you're, you're spot on with that. And I remind people too, that, you know, in the change-making space, what I've found is that many of us, okay, our good is better than most people's excellent. Yeah. Right. And so when you when you understand it in that context, give yourself a break. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I have one more big question for you. I could talk to you all day. So we're all relying on technology more. And you've said this, you know, technology is our window to the world um, and has been definitely over the past two years. So, so what are healthy ways we can actually handle this? We're relying on tech a lot. How do we stay connected and stay productive, but also not completely stress out? Absolutely. So, so technology is a, is a great tool and uh, I'm a big fan of not sort of shutting off the technology, but being intentional about how we're using the technology and being aware of and tuned into how it's actually adding value to our lives and our work and how it's not adding value into our lives and our work. And so as it concerns the pandemic, we've talked a lot about social distancing in order to protect one another from the spread of COVID-19. And I like to apply this concept to our technology so we can practice social distancing with our technology. And there's some very specific ways that we can do that. One is turning off the notifications for all of those apps that aren't mission critical, right? You know, maybe you like Instagram, uh, maybe you have that breaking news app and you like to keep up to date on what's happening with current events. All of those are perfectly valid uses of technology. But if those things aren't mission critical, turn off the notifications so that you aren't bombarded with updates um, every time there's something new happening and you can use your unplugged time from work to check on those things at your own, at your own pace at night, charging your devices outside of your bedroom, buying a real alarm clock. If you have a family, you all can create a, a, a centralized charging station 
where you do this, where you agree on a, a bedtime for your devices collectively, and you're not waking up to your phone and you're not scrolling and looking at emails and text messages first thing in the morning. You're not stressing yourself out with that first thing in the morning. You're actually giving yourself a way to ease into your day. So those would be just two things that you can do in terms of practicing social distancing with your technology and support you in having a healthier um, relationship with technology. That's a really, a really big challenge for you right now. So Miko, I absolutely love that social distancing from your technology. I don't think I have had anybody say that to me before, but that is actually kind of brilliant. What a, what a great takeaway. So before we close, I just want to ask you if, you know, our listening audience wants to go and learn more, learn about you, um, keep track of what you're doing, where could they go to do that? The best place to go is to go to my website, mindfultechie.com. So that's M-I-N-D-F-U-L-T-E-C-H-I-E.com. Sign up for the email list. You'll get updated on all of the, the latest and greatest. The other thing I recommend is, you know, we released a, a playbook earlier this year with BlackBot. Um, it's called the Hybrid Workplace Wellness Playbook for Grantmakers. So if you go to the BlackBot website and search for that, many of the tips that I talked about are in that playbook. And even though the playbook is written for grant makers, it applies to social change makers, regardless of the type of organization that you are working in. So I recommend people check that out if you want a deeper dive into some of the things we talked about today. That's what I was just going to say. This is good for anybody, like anybody anywhere to, to take these tips away and apply them. So Miko, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. I do feel like you've given me a little bit of like personal consultation. I've been taking my own notes uh, <laughs> and will apply them. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So to the SG Engage listening audience, thank you so much for joining us again for another podcast episode. Please go out to however you consume podcasts and see what else we're talking about. Until then, this is Rachel Hutchison signing off.